Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Heredity Podcast. In this week's show, we'll take a look at a bacteria in Drosophila which protects against parasitic wasps and measure the effects of somatic mutations in blueberries. I'm Jeff Marsh. Relationships are always tough when one person is getting a lot more from it. So it might seem a little puzzling that some female insects harbour bacterial lodges within their bodies which use up nutrients and often kill their host's male offspring. Mariana Mateos from Texas A&M University and her team set up an experiment to explain one such relationship between male-killing endosymbiotic bacteria Spiroplasma and geneticist's favourite Drosophila melanogaster. Perhaps Spiroplasma is keeping its host happy by protecting it from parasitic wasps. I gave Mariana a call to find out. So endosymbiotic bacteria are just bacteria that live inside another organism. And by symbiotic, we mean that it's a very intimate relationship. And the association can be uh, mutualistic or it can also be uh, negative to the animal or plant host. And they're quite common then in insects. They're extremely prevalent. For example, just one kind of bacterium, the Wolbachia, is predicted to be infected in approximately two-thirds of insect species. But there's many other types of bacterium that associate with insects. Okay, and there are two kind of broad categories, aren't there, of relationship here. You get these obligative ones where they both completely depend on each other, and then then you get facultative where, where that's not necessarily the case. Yes, so the obligate ones... Again, both the host and the endosymbiotic bacterium are completely dependent on each other for survival and reproduction. And they typically benefit the host with some kind of nutritional benefit. Whereas the facultative, in this case, they're dependent on the host for survival and transmission, but the host does not depend on them completely or if it does, it's context-dependent. So there's now a lot of reports of facultative endosymbionts conferring some kind of protection against either environmental stresses or against natural enemies of their hosts. Okay, so for the bacteria, it's a no-brainer. They just want to get through to the next generation. But presumably, they need some sort of strategies to kind of coerce the insect into, into entering into this relationship. Yes. And the way some of them have achieved it is through uh, reproductive parasitism. So in some cases, for example, in the case of the bacterium that we study, spiroplasma, some strains, particularly the one we studied in this project, it kills the sense of infected females. So essentially all the male progeny of an infected female die. And presumably the advantage to the bacterium is because if a fly lays eggs in a particular source that's a limited resource, like a rotting fruit, 
and only her female progeny can transmit the bacterium because they are transmitted from mother to offspring, then there's presumably a benefit from the death of these male siblings because it releases resources for those female siblings, for the sisters, so they will presumably survive better and be able to transmit the bacterium to the next generation. Okay, so that's one of these strategies, kind of manipulating aspects of the reproduction. Uh, But another one, uh, and I think the one that you were looking at in this paper then, was increasing the fitness of their hosts, kind of sweetening the deal, if you like. Yes. So if if you have you know a natural enemy attacking a population of flies, if the flies that have the bacterium have a higher fitness because they survived the attack, then you're going to have more infected flies or more flies that have the symbiont transmitting it to the next generation. So it'll increase the frequencies of the bacterium will increase in the population of the fly. Okay, and uh, you were specifically looking at protection against parasitic wasps in this experiment, weren't you? Yes. So we looked at protection against two species of parasitic wasps. So these basically lay an egg in the larval stage of the fly, and that wasp egg hatches inside that larva of the fly and grows, and eventually once the host gets to the pupal stage the developing wasp larva basically kills that developing fly, it eats it up, and then it continues its development inside that pupil case of the fly. And what you get a few days later is an adult wasp emerging instead of an adult fly. And so essentially then, what you were doing in this experiment was trying to explain the persistence of these, as you mentioned, costly bacteria in wild populations of Drosophila. Yes. Well, we had discovered the phenomenon of protection in a related species of fly in Drosophila hydei in a previous study, but we wanted to know whether this occurred in Drosophila melanogaster, which is also a model organism, because it also harbors naturally spiroplasma bacterium. And so we tested whether the bacterium confers protection to Drosophila melanogaster against two different kinds of wasps to get an idea of how uh, general the protection might be or give us a hint towards the mechanism. Okay then, and so does this defense mechanism against parasitic wasps explain the persistence of um, spiroplasma in this Drosophila population? Okay, so what we did is we modeled the conditions under which defense could contribute to the persistence of spiroplasma in Drosophila melanogaster And our results indicate that alone it's unlikely that this mechanism guarantees its persistence because it would only occur under really high levels of wasp parasitism and levels of wasp parasitism that don't really occur in the wild um, or have not reported. So what we think is happening is that maybe it's the combination of the protective um, mechanism and the reproductive parasitism through this male killing that together might explain, you know, the persistence of spiroplasma in natural populations of Drosophila. Okay, so it's clear that these bacteria are having some protective effect. Um, Do you have any idea how they're actually doing that? What we know is that when a wasp larva is in a fly that has the bacterium, it begins some growth, 
but then it essentially stalls development. It, it slows down and essentially stalls. This doesn't really give us a very good idea about the mechanism, but this occurs against the two species of wasps. And as I mentioned earlier, they have very distinct strategies of circumventing the host defenses. So the fact that they're suffering the same fate by spiroplasma uh, suggests that you know, it's a common mechanism used against these two wasps. It could be that maybe the wasps are competing with the bacterium for some kind of nutrient. It is also possible that the wasp um, is passively eating or ingesting the bacterium and that the bacterium you know, has some kind of toxicity on the wasp. Or it could be that the bacterium is influencing the fly's immunity or enhancing it in a way that it affects the wasp. Okay, and uh, because you looked at a wild population that had a, a fair bit of genetic diversity, is it fair to say that spiroplasma's um, pr- pr- protective, effect, um, protective effect against wasps is a general mechanism uh, within Drosophila? What we can say is that spiroplasma has this protective effect against at least these two kinds of wasps. It remains to be tested against other kinds of wasps, and there's, you know, four families of wasps that attack Drosophila. So it remains to be seen whether spiroplasma will protect against other species of wasps. Plants grow differently to animals, and there are several benefits to this. They can grow very large and often live for a very long time. But there are also costs. Somatic mutations, that is mutations occurring in cells other than the germline, are transmissible to their gametes. The effect of this on plant evolution has been discussed for decades, but a few months ago in Heredity, Bobby Walsh et al. published a paper detailing the first definitive demonstration of a negative fitness effect caused by somatic mutations in a plant. This month, Douglas Schofield of Uppsala University in Sweden wrote a news and commentary article about it, and I gave him a call to hear more. At the tip of a growing shoot or a growing root in a plant is a small collection of stem cells. And these stem cells are like stem cells in any animal. They're undifferentiated and they can become any type of cell in the plant. And as these stem cells divide, they move away from this tip. They progressively become the wood, the bark, the leaves, the flowers that we're typically used to seeing in plants. And one of those cell types then is the gametes, and I guess that's where plants are fundamentally different from animals. That's true. These stem cells produce these cells that become gametes as well. In animals, typically, the cells that produce gametes are not affected by normal growth. On the other hand, in plants, normal growth of the plant body does involve cells that will become gametes. Why do somatic mutations pose a threat then to plants? Uh, They pose a threat to plants because plants can get very large and very old. There was some recent research in humans that showed that as males age, the sperm that they're carrying carries a greater load of mutations. In plants, likewise, larger, older plants will produce gametes that carry more mutations. In humans, somatic mutations in our bodies give rise to cancers, and of course that can affect our health, but all somatic mutations that occur in growing shoots of plants have the potential to be passed on to offspring. 
Okay, so presumably there are some sort of adaptations that plants have evolved to deal with the risk from somatic mutations. What do we know about that so far? Well, back in 1988, Edward Klikowski wrote a book detailing a number of ways in which plants have evolved to try and reduce the negative effects that somatic mutations can have during growth, starting from the ways in which these growing tips are physically structured to the ways in which plant crowns are branched to the ways in which sort of these descendant lineages of cells are segregated within the plant body. Is there any actual evidence of fitness declines due to somatic mutation? Well, up till this point, evidence of fitness declines in plants due to somatic mutations has been a bit difficult to get. It's not that people haven't expected to see it. It's that it could also be due to other factors. Okay, then. So this sounds like a similar situation to that that you mentioned in human sperm. How have people recently gone about distinguishing between this sort of aging and the actual effects of somatic mutation on the gametes? Well, a recent paper in Heredity by Bobby Wash et al. took to putting a direct test to the fitness of different types of progeny produced in a plant. Klikowski, in his 1988 book, had suggested a particular kind of test that could help to uncover the effects of somatic mutations. This test basically exploits the fact that as plants grow and accumulate somatic mutations, that different branches will accumulate unique somatic mutations. And so we expect the seeds produced by a self-pollination to have lower fitness than the seeds produced by pollination that involves pollen from another plant. Right, because of inbreeding depression. Exactly, because of inbreeding depression. If somatic mutation is important, though, then the inbreeding depression that we see when we pollinate a flower with its own pollen, we expect to be due to mutations that were present in the seed that gave rise to the plant, as well as to the new somatic mutations that have appeared as the plant has grown to the point at which this flower is found. Okay, so this recent paper uh, by Bobby Wash then took that technique and applied it to a, a much bigger data size. Tell us then about the results. The inbreeding depression that occurred in uh, a flower pollinated with its own pollen was greater than the inbreeding depression that occurred in a flower that was pollinated by pollen from the same plant, but a different part of the same plant. And if there is no somatic mutation occurring during growth, then there's no reason for us to expect there to be a difference in the inbreeding depression. And to my knowledge, this is the first time that we've had uh, a test of this scale, and it's very satisfying to see. If this is happening all the time in plants, surely it's having an effect on rates of evolution. Yes, you would certainly think so. Uh, however, it's very curious. Um, some recent studies, uh, a couple of large recent studies, showed that lineages of predominantly large plants actually have lower rates of evolution at the DNA level than do lineages of predominantly small plants. That sounds quite contradictory, given that we've just heard that the, the bigger plants have more somatic mutations. Yes, it certainly is curious. It suggests that what we need to do is develop theory that really helps us understand the dynamics of somatic mutations once they've been produced, because the work of Bobby Wash et al. showed definitively that they are produced. But what happens to them after they enter the gametes? It could be that there's greater selection at the gamete stage. 
Okay, so where do we go from here then? What's next on in this field of research? Well, we need um, both more theory and more data. The prevalence of next generation sequencing technology and its wide use in ecology and evolution. I'm certain that there are projects that, that out there that are producing next generation sequencing data that can help to address this, that can look directly at uh, the DNA in different parts of the same plant and look for somatic mutations. But not only do we need sort of to understand what's happening with somatic mutations at the DNA level, we need to understand the ways that the sorts of effects that these somatic mutations can have actually in the fitness of pollen, in the fitness of ovules in the plant. That was Douglas Schofield. And that's it for this episode. Join us again in a month for your next installment of the Heredity Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.